Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If you don't have your Bible and would like to use the blue uh, Bible that's in the chair or pew, turn to page 1007. Having spoken to the people of God about the great work of Christ, chapter 7 through 10, he's bringing some application beginning with verse 19. And he tells them, first of all, to have a bold assurance in the presence of God, to draw near to God, to hold fast their hope and to continue to be committed to the people of God. Based upon this great work of Christ, give yourself freely to God and to his people, he says, basically, in those first verses. Then the warning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, as we come to this sobering passage... Bless us to know your word and to believe afresh the precious gospel of Jesus Christ and to hold fast our hope in him to the end. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. I have many times people uh, stop me or we're eating, or whatever, they find out I'm a minister, or maybe it's somebody in the church, and they'll say, what do you think about Hebrews 10? (laughs) And I know that they're referring to this passage, because this is a very frightening passage. It's a passage that makes us wonder, or really gets to that central issue that we always have, is can I lose my salvation? Can something happen and I not make it in the end? What is the nature of that thing that would happen by which I would not end up in heaven, even though I'm a believer? It calls, it brings to mind also all kinds of ideas of, am I always in his grace or do I kind of fall in and out of his grace as a believer? It brings to mind back in the early part of the church or early history of the church after the persecution of Decius, the Roman emperor, many had turned away. Even leaders of the church had broken under the fear of persecution. 
So the question, in fact, there was a division as to who the pope would be at that point, who the leader of the church would be, because uh, Cornelius was taking, along with Cyprian, a, a, a more relaxed view that there should be forgiveness for those. Uh, but Novation was saying, no, absolutely not. They turned away from God, and, and he would quote this kind of passage to support that they had the knowledge of the truth, but now they turned away, and so there is no sacrifice for them. Under early teaching, Hermas would say that there's a second repentance possible after you've been baptized, but that's it. So you're baptized, old sins are forgiven, you're given one more chance. If you blow it then, not just say in an average sin, but a serious sin, then that's all you get. Now, what came from that, too, is the idea that in baptism, all your former sins are forgiven. But then you kind of start over at that point and you have to regularly come back to the church to receive absolution. And if you don't time it right, you're in trouble. That's why last rites always are so important, because who knows what kind of sins in the last weeks or months a man has committed in heart or, or speaking or whatever. And so we've got to make sure that those are clean as well. So there's this effort, this sense of of being forgiven, but then immediately falling further away from God and under his judgment, uh, potentially, and then having to get cleansed all over again, a kind of building up. And so only taking care of those up to date and keeping up to date. One of the reasons why for so long people would say if a man who's a believer commits suicide, he for sure is going to hell. No doubt about it, because there was no chance for the forgiveness of that sin. Some people even would think that that's the unforgivable thing, that you would take your own life and that would that would do it. But you see, we believe that a person enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ, is is united to Christ and is in a permanent condition or state of acceptance before God, always in his Favor and acceptance doesn't mean that we always please him in everything we do, but we stand in a relationship of acceptance, always united to Christ, always our father's beloved children. That's why the writer has just gotten through saying we've had a new and living way opened up uh, for us. Verse 20. We have this wonderful priest, so draw near, draw near and enjoy and delight in your relationship with full assurance and even boldness come into the presence of God. And of course, we do constantly confess our sins, but it's, it's not as though we're having to regain standing with him or regain a fellowship or a relationship with him all over again. We have this relationship and we have an immediate and direct and constant relationship through Jesus Christ. That's why earlier in Hebrews, 
He says, for instance, in chapter four. First of all, chapter two, he says, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. There's the assumption that we will be struggling with sin at all times. And he urges upon us constantly come to the one who's made mercy available to you in your struggle against sin. The same thing then in chapter four, where he says, we have verse 14, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You see, hold fast this sense of belonging to him, our confession of the true forgiveness that we have in Christ. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And of course, that includes in time of need of our struggle with sin. So, in the first place, we must understand what is being said here. And it is an absolute turning away from Christ that the writer is speaking of. Which brings us to the first point that this complete turning away is a possibility. It is a possibility. And we don't say that it's a possibility for a true Christian, but we say it is a possibility for those who profess the name of Christ. I hope you understand what I'm saying. It is not possible, we believe, for a true child of God to turn away from Christ. But this passage sets forth that it is a possibility for those who profess the name of Christ to prove themselves at some point in their lives by utterly turning away from God and Christ, that however much they looked like they were believers, they finally showed themselves not to be believers. So turning away is a possibility. Notice how he says in this in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, he doesn't exclude himself. He doesn't say, now, this might be possible for some of you. But I can't even speak of myself as this is even a possibility. He doesn't do that. He's like the Apostle Paul who says, I beat myself spiritually, he's saying, till I'm black and blue. He says, I run the race lest while I proclaim the truth to others, I might be disqualified. And that word means utterly condemned. Here's the Apostle Paul. He didn't doubt that he was he belonged to Christ. He didn't doubt that he would be in heaven one day. He had full assurance that he belonged to Christ. But he still gave himself relentlessly to the gospel to believe and to uh, know more of Christ and to taste more of his goodness and to fall more and more deeply in love with him. Because he knew that he, if he allowed sin to 
continue in his life, if he began to turn away from Christ and completely turn away from Christ, he himself would be disqualified. So it's interesting in Scripture, the, the assurance that we will be his forever, which we call in theology preservation, the, the preservation of the saints. And we believe that the saints will be preserved. Also, alongside of that in Scripture is the perseverance of the saints. Because God does preserve us, we always persevere, not perfectly, but as a constant way of life. Even though there may be failings, even though there may be turning away for a time, eventually his preserving will cause all of his own finally to truly to persevere. Because he really saves us and he does a good job. And so we continue to believe, we continue to trust, we continue to fall down over our sins and say, Lord Jesus, I have no other hope but you. We don't despair of his mercy. We continue to trust his mercy. When we struggle and fail, we don't turn away and become hard, more and more hardened and finally just turn away and, and give up. on. We continue to come to him for forgiveness. So this passage is really not talking about someone falling into a sin or struggling with sin as a believer. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with a person abandoning the faith, walking away from the gospel, deserting the worship and people of God, turning your back on the things of Christ. Specifically in this instance, these were Jewish Christians abandoning the fellowship of the Christians and returning to the synagogue. That's specifically what he's dealing with. But, of course, the principle would apply across the boards. For any reason, for whatever it might be, that we would leave the fellowship of God's people and, and leave his word and leave the ministry of the church and leave... Christ himself, then this is true of us. So it's not even, we might say, an act of apostasy, for there are acts of apostasy. There are individual acts of denial of Christ. But it means a state of apostasy. Willful, he says, if we go on sinning deliberately or willfully, this means obstinately and determinedly in opposition to all attempts to be reclaimed. So this is a warning to all of us. For even the writer says, if we, if any one of us turns away, he says, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. If we abandon the only one who can sacrifice for sins and we turn our back upon him, then there is no hope for us. And you see, this would have a special application to those Jewish Christians because they might return to Judaism and say, well, we're going to depend on the animal sacrifices or we're going to determine we're going to depend on all of the structure of Old Testament ritual. And this writer himself, a Jew, is saying, brothers and sisters, 
if you turn away from the whole point of these sacrifices in the Old Testament, pointing to the one who now has made sacrifice, then you have no sacrifice. You have nothing. And to leave, it'd be like one of uh, the sons of Noah at some point in the outbreak of the storm to say, I'm bailing out of here. I'm going overboard. And he would be drowned and lost because the one place of safety is the ark. The one place of safety is Jesus Christ in this world. And that's what he's trying to drive home to these people who were facing persecution and wanted to get out of the burning blaze of persecution and find comfort and relief and a kind of shelter in this community that was not being persecuted. And of course, he's holding out to them the awful prospect. Oh, you will be persecuted, but it'll be by God and not by man. Don't turn from the only sacrifice there is. And you see, that can help us to to think, I don't want to even play with that in my life. I don't want to even crack the door open and have that kind of mentality. Well, it won't matter. God will forgive me. It doesn't matter if I really work on this sin or not. It doesn't really matter if I change my life. I'll just drift along. It doesn't matter if I'm living in open rebellion against God with some sin and it just continues. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It does matter. If someone is continuing in a sin without repentance, the leaders of the church, you, no one can say to them, Oh, I know you're a believer. It's okay. You know what happened to my own wife when she was raised in a church in which she professed faith in Christ at a fairly early age. But she really never understood the gospel, didn't understand forgiveness. And she had a very hard time in college in her life. And many, several times went to her minister with her struggles, her spiritual struggles, her moral struggles. Her life was falling to pieces. And he would say, look, open up your Bible. Open up your Bible. Look here. What does it say? On so-and-so and so-and-so day, you received Jesus Christ. You came down front. She'd shrug her shoulders and, okay. And then, right after college, she came into contact with a, Presbyterian minister, and after she described her story, he looked her in the eye and he said, it sounds like you're not a believer. And she said, it shocked me to my bones, but I thought, this is the first time anybody's told me the truth about myself. And that summer, she came to know Jesus Christ. She came to trust Him in His forgiveness uh, that she had never known before. So this, what's interesting about this, though, it's, it's not that the sin that's being talked about is not so much a particular sin. It's not continuing to trust in Christ. You see, it's not making Christ the center and foundation of your life to trust him with your sins, to trust him with your struggles, to with your guilt and in every thing you have to go to Him continually. But to turn away. 
for something else. It's interesting when Jesus talks about the sower and the seed in Matthew chapter 13. And he talks about how the word is sown like seed into the ground. And one of the plots is a stony ground that has a shelf of stone. And so the seed immediately pops up and it looks like it's healthy. But when the sun comes out, because it has no way for the roots to really get down to the water level, then uh, it dries up. And Jesus says, this is like persecution. People receive the gospel with joy. This sounds good. I like the sound. You know, I love being with the people of God and I love talking about heaven and forgiveness. But then persecution arises and they wither away. So what happens at that point is as same thing of happening to these people. Persecution becomes their God. To not be accepted or included, the, the pressure of loss or rejection or loneliness or ridicule, not being approved or promoted or honored, that kind of loss becomes more important. And it shows that we really never did think he was valuable. We really never did see that he was precious to us. We really never put ourselves in his hands that he would forgive us of our sins and take our lives and make us whatever he wants us to be. But Jesus gives another example. It could be the soil that has seeds of thorns and you don't see the thorns initially. So as the seed grows, the plant grows, the thorns grow up as well and they eventually choke it out. And he says, this is the cares of the world, the riches of the world. Um, it could be the pressure of, of different pleasures and activities and stuff and responsibilities and entertainment, distractions everywhere that we never really give ourselves to the Lord Jesus. He never is the one that we trust in all of life. So we can hate God by openly rejecting him or we can hate God by quietly neglecting him. And so the writer, speaking to believers, please hear this. He's speaking to believers. And if you see this path that's out there, if you turn away from Christ, there will be no sacrifice and you will face the judgment of God. Would you want to be trying to find that path? Would you want to start kind of running alongside that path and willful sinning? And No. We want to stay away from that prospect. And so he gives this this warning. So turning away is a possibility, but he shows also what a monstrosity it is. Because he says, he describes it, he contrasts, you know, in the Old Testament, he, he quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 17, where two or three witnesses uh, come and a man has to be judged and put to death. And also from Deuteronomy 13, he, he speaks of how you're not to show mercy in that case. It's interesting that both of those have to do with idolatry. So he's really getting at these Jewish believers saying, look, if you turn away to go back to Judaism, it's a new form of idolatry because you're not anymore serving the true God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who God is. Do you realize that? That's who God is. 
He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That defines him. Any other God that has no relationship or doesn't even speak of Jesus Christ isn't God. Because he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul, the Jew, declared him to be. So he says, if we do that, if, if, if that kind of judgment occurs under Moses, how much more if we sin against Christ? And notice how he describes it in verse 28. He says, you've spurned the Son of God. Literally, you've trampled him under foot. It's the same word as Matthew 5.13, where it says, if salt has lost its taste, it will be thrown out and trampled under or in Matthew 7, 6, don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. And the idea is it's worthless. It's just something you throw on the ground and then you walk on it after that because it's pointless, meaningless. It, it has no play whatsoever. And it even it, it's valueless. It, we're trampling underfoot the one whom angels Adore. So to anyone here, not to trust Jesus Christ is to trample him underfoot. And there's no neutral ground there. There's not a middle ground. Well, I think he's a good man. I'm not opposed to him. I just don't really trust him or worship him or really give my life. Then you trample him underfoot. Because he is the glorious Son of God that the Father has offered. He suffered infinitely for your good. And not to receive and embrace him and bow down before him is to despise him and trample him down like a worthless piece of garbage. And he says we profane or count as common the blood of the covenant. It's the word that's used many times ritualistically of that which is unclean. That which is unholy. So that we're regarding the blood that he shed. It's the blood of an ordinary man who died. It's no different than the blood of the two criminals that were crucified with him. Or the blood of anybody else. It's just common, worthless blood. And it means nothing to me. And I leave it and I abandon it. Or even worse, perhaps, he means it's the blood of an imposter. The blood of another criminal. That's all it is. And then he says, we insult the spirit of grace. The spirit who is the source of all kindness of God coming to us. And his only intent is to do us good and to bring the riches of Jesus Christ into our lives now and continually, progressively, forever. And he says we are spurning him. We are mocking him. We are laughing at that grace this one who is devoted to us. So, it is a possibility for us to leave. And therefore, we want to resist it in every way through our faith. It is a monstrosity that we would turn away from him. And then finally, turning away, as he says, 
is a terrible finality. It is a possibility, he says, if we go on sinning deliberately. It is a monstrosity as to what these three things that we would trample underfoot the Son of God, that we would profane the blood and we would outrage the spirit of grace. But it is a final. It is a terrible finality. As he said, as we've already talked about, there's no sacrifice for sins. It doesn't mean that this person couldn't come back and receive forgiveness. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying if you turn away from Christ, there is no sacrifice, period. And as I've said to people many times when I've been witnessing to them and they say, well, let me think about it. I want to pray about it. Or especially if somebody says, you know, that's not right now. I'll think of it at another time. And, and you realize that this could be, as far as you know, the closest God ever draws near to you to draw you to himself. You know, you don't, you don't just bank on something will happen. My heart could get harder and harder. I could become more and more calloused. I may never even get close to wanting him again. Judgment is a terrible thing. And he says to these people who might turn away, we will be facing vengeance, the very vengeance of God. Verse 30, vengeance is mine. It belongs to me, God says. I will surely, certainly repay it. He says in verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment um, in the original language it has this word, a kind of the certain judgment. It doesn't mean a certainty of judgment, but it means a, a certain judgment, a judgment you can't even define. A judgment that's hard to describe because it is so incredible, so horrible. It's of such undefined magnitude. It's inexpressible. You can't really say what it is. A, a judgment that goes off the charts of description. We don't know its parameters. We don't know its nature. Whatever our conception of it is, it falls short of what it really is. And I think of that passage in Ephesians 3.20, which is so wonderful when it says, He is able to do exceedingly beyond all that we ask or think to do us good. But he's able to do exceedingly beyond your imagination in destroying you. And that's the amazing thing. You will have this God, if you but trust him, you will have him devoted with his unlimited power to do you good beyond your imagination. Or if you refuse to trust him. That same God of power with his unlimited resources will bring down upon your head a destruction and you can't fathom what it will be. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So he will spend endless energy. He's the living God. It speaks of his energetic, active power to bring about good or evil. 
How incredible if you trust him. How horrible if you do not. And there will be no escape. Do you see how he's urging them? He's saying there is this possibility for you, especially in this time of persecution, that you would abandon our fellowship. You would abandon meeting with the people of God and hearing the word of God. Abandon fellowshipping with the people of God and trying to maintain a zeal and a growing love for Christ and for people. And to use your gifts continually in the church. Those are the kind of things he's talking about. And, and coming into the presence of God is, through Christ is no longer precious to you. He says, this, this could happen if, we, if it does You've got to bear in mind the monstrosity of it and the horrible finality of it if you turn away from Christ. Don't turn away. And I just want to touch on a few things to say to you to encourage you in the other direction. One is to believe His promise. It's faith. It's not in the first place what you do. It's how you trust in His promise. All through Hebrews, He talks about holding fast to the Word that we have heard, beginning in chapter 2. Hold fast to the promise that we have in Him. That's what happens is the promise begins to fade. The sweetness of it, the delight of it, our joy in it, our thrill and peace that we have in it begins to fade and it this means really nothing much to us anymore. And that's why we say in our church, our vision is nurturing a joy for loving God and loving people. We must nurture that joy in one another. Nurture the promise in one another's lives so that we constantly are beholding the beauty and glory of Christ that we're being drawn to Him. He spends three chapters just talking about the glory of Jesus. Hopefully, so they'll be so fastened to that beauty and glory they would never turn away from Him. They wouldn't trample Him underfoot and profane His blood. And I urge you to maintain a full assurance. In the other chapter that scares us, Chapter 6, he says some of these same things. And later in that chapter, he says, we desire that each one of you have full assurance. That's your best defense. Satan wants to carve you out of the herd by trial or tragedy or sin or guilt or your own failure so that you don't have this sense of the acceptance of God in Jesus Christ. And that, that is beginning, when, when that nerve is cut of your delight and rest and peace in Jesus Christ, the nerve of your obedience is cut. The nerve of your joy is cut. And if that does not heal, then it can cause us to be hardened. He says earlier in chapter 3, beware, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let us encourage one another. Beware of isolation. 
Beware of even being around people all the time, but you really don't have a relationship with those people. No accountability, no sharing, no honesty. Sin gains power in secret. And that's why right before this, he has said, don't neglect meeting together and stirring one another up to love and good deeds. You see that involvement in each other's lives. So, it is not simply, hey, stop doing this, start doing that. That's not the point. The point is, keep your faith lively. Keep your assurance strong. Keep your sense of peace and joy rich in Jesus Christ. That's why, as I prayed earlier, Paul says, the love of Christ governs us. See, it's the love. It's experiencing that love and loving Him in return that's the whole of the Christian life. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the one into whose hands you would fall if you turn away from him urges you to come and be embraced. The warrior's hand that strikes down the enemy is also the hand that embraces the child. And oh, he urges you. Be embraced by those mighty hands. The hand that was crucified will care for you with that same intensity every day. But to reject that love is to expose you to His wrath. So I urge you, if you're here this morning, perhaps you've never trusted Christ. You've never been able to say, I know all my sins are forgiven in Christ. I've cried out to Him he is a sacrifice for sin and He offers Himself to you that all of your sins would be forgiven and you would be in a fixed relationship with God through Jesus Christ that can never change by His grace. I urge you, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from that hope. Let us pray. Oh Lord, how we praise You and thank You for the precious Lord Jesus, for your gift, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh Lord, fix our hearts never to turn away from Christ, never to depend on our own goodness, our own works, to depend on nothing else but Jesus Christ. Lord, cause us to seek Him out in the Word. Cause us to meet regularly together, to refresh ourselves together in the grace of Christ. So that no matter what happens to us, no matter what difficulty or trial or even death itself, that our faith will stretch forth and lay hold of Your goodness and find You to be a glorious and gracious and kind God. Lord, thank You that You run after us and You call us to Yourself and You warn us. You warn us so that we will not, that we might not ever turn away. And we thank You that it is Your grace that keeps us and not our own strength. It is the power of Jesus Christ. It is the power of Your Holy Spirit and even that is a part of our faith, Lord, to admit we cannot keep ourselves. We will not keep ourselves. We never came to you to begin with. You came after us. 
You drew us after Yourself. And You are the only One who can keep us. And so, Lord, we trust You. Hold on to us in all of our weakness. Thank You that You will supply us with faith. You will constantly show Yourself to us. You will be our God forever and ever. We praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.